Revelation chapter 6 open as we study it together this morning and we're simply considering today how the Lamb opens six seals. The Lamb opens six seals. A couple of nights ago I caught the beginning of the 10 o'clock news and of course the first headline was about the latest variant of coronavirus that's been discovered in South Africa. Uh, the newsreader explained what was going on and then just and then said We'll be asking just how worried should we be? We'll be asking just how worried should we be? So it wasn't a question of whether or not we should be worried. The assumption was that of course we are worried. The only question is how worried should we be? And yet in a sense we we can't blame newsreaders or anyone else in our culture for talking like that because... That is naturally how men and women will feel if they look at this world without the perspective that God's word brings. As we've returned to Revelation recently, we've considered the change of perspective that this section of the book brings. We've been taken from the surface of the earth, as it were, right up into the throne room of heaven. (coughs) We've been looking over the shoulder of the Apostle John seeing this great vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in Revelation chapter 6, John sees troubling things, worrying things, the kinds of things that have been making the headlines in the 10 o'clock news for decades, the kinds of things that have worried human beings for centuries. But although John sees those things, friends, He also sees again the Lamb, the Lamb who is in control of all of it. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that the book of Revelation is, a lot of it is laid out in several cycles. It's a bit like going around and around a beautiful fountain over and over again. And each time you go around, you see the fountain from different angles and maybe different parts of the the architecture catch your eye one time or Maybe the the patterns or or the way that the water is is coming out catches your eye another time. uh, And you look at it from different angles as you go around it several times. Well, Revelation similarly tells us several of of the same things over and over again throughout the book. It tells us about some things that are going on in our world right now. It tells us about some things that will happen eventually in our world in the days to come. And it tells us ultimately about the end of all things, which in fact will be a new beginning. And so Revelation 6 is one of those cycles, or most of one of those cycles. It covers, Revelation 6 covers a huge span of history. It actually takes us almost all the way to the end of human history. And as we study it today, we need to remember what we saw in chapter 5. The Lamb slain but standing in heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ who has this scroll, this plan of God in his hands. Who is in control of everything in our lives and in our world. And friends, if our trust is in that Lamb, we do not have to worry. We do not have to worry. It's only if your trust is not in the Lamb that you really need to ask the question, Just how worried should we be? So we're going to work our way through this chapter today. Uh, We're going to spend 
a lot more, more of our time on the first point uh, compared to the second two. But let's think first of all today about the first four seals. The first four seals. And as these first four seals are opened, we see that evil is under the Lamb's control. The first four, fa- the first four seals show us evil under the Lamb's control. John says in chapter 6 verse 1 that he watched when the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. And so again notice that the Lamb is controlling everything that happens here. And when the Lamb opens the first four seals of the scroll, each time uh, a horse and a rider appear for each of the first four seals. Horses today are quite romanticized creatures. Uh, They're usually associated with sport and leisure. The first children's TV show that my daughter has shown any interest in is about little girls riding horses in the American frontier era. And to watch that show, you would think that the frontier era was an absolute breeze, that you just rode horses all day and everything was lovely and shiny and simple. Uh, But in the ancient world, horses were a symbol of warfare. That was the main use of horses in the ancient world. They were taken onto the battlefield. And so Revelation 6, in describing four horses, friends, is setting a grim scene of war. And four horses appear as the Lamb opens these four seals. The first horse is white, the second horse is red, the third is black, and the fourth is, depending on your translations, grey, pale grey, pale green. And again, remember here that Revelation is using symbols and pictures. John did not literally see four strangely colored horses run across the island of Patmos. This is a vision. This is picture language. But what does this picture of the horses mean? Well, there's very little debate, actually, about the second, third, and fourth horses and and what they symbolize. We'll get to them in a moment. Uh, There is some debate about the first horse, the white one. Look at chapter 6, verse 2. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Some preachers suggest this first rider on the white horse is actually the Lord Jesus Christ. Or if it's not Jesus Christ, they suggest that this symbolizes the gospel of Jesus Christ going out into all the world, conquering the hearts of many sinners. On the other hand, others suggest that this first horse actually symbolizes war and conflict on the earth. Perhaps even this rider on the white horse symbolizes Satan, who goes out deceiving the world. Satan who likes to masquerade as an angel of light. Satan who likes to deceive the nations with false religions and who tempts men into Uh, false ideas about their own greatness and glory and that leads to conflict and war on the world well those are two very different interpretations of this horse that it could be christ and his gospel or it could be satan and warfare which is it well personally i'm more persuaded by the second option that this white horse symbolizes conflict and war and perhaps even the influence of satan I'll give you a few reasons why I think that's the case. Uh, Firstly, Jesus is symbolized in this section of the book by the Lamb, quite clearly. 
And it is the Lamb who opens each of these seals. And so it would be very odd if Jesus, the Lamb, opening the seals was also somehow in one of the seals. That doesn't, to me, really make logical sense. Secondly, the description of these four horses shows that they are all essentially sent to do the same thing. They're, they're all really part of a unit. Uh, and that's emphasized further by what we read earlier in Ezekiel 14 and in Zechariah chapter 6. The horses in Zechariah 6 are all doing the same thing. They're all a unit. And I think that informs what we're reading here in Revelation chapter 6. And so again, it wouldn't really make logical sense for one of these horses to be doing something completely different from all the others. Thirdly, when you look at how Jesus describes, how Jesus himself described what the earth will be like between his first and second comings, and he does that in the Gospels, the first thing that Jesus mentions each time is the existence of false religions, false prophets, and warfare. Mark chapter 13, verse 6, for example, Jesus says, Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. So for all those reasons, and I hope all of that is as clear as it possibly can be, for all those reasons, I believe that the first horse, the white horse, represents warfare. Conflict stirred up amongst the nations through the influence of, of Satan who goes out to deceive the nations. The other three horses and their riders also describe things that are going on in our world. And the point about all, all that these horses symbolize, friends, is, uh, and I want you to get this, that they describe what the world is like now, but they also describe what the world has been like for thousands of years. We, we can easily see things here that are happening now, and we might think, well, is there any significance to this? The fact that we see all these things happening in our day. Well, actually, all these things have been happening for thousands of years. Verses 3 and 4 describe the red horse. The red horse comes and takes peace from the earth and sheds blood. And then there's a black horse in verse 5. The rider on this horse has a pair of scales. And look at verse 6. I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. A denarius was a day's wage in the ancient world. If you worked all day, you got your denarius, you would get a loaf of bread and you could feed your family for that day. But the price increases mentioned here with the black horse's arrival uh, they are anywhere between 8 and 16 times more than normal. This is, this is the cost of living skyrocketing, we might say, in our modern language. And so the third writer brings economic strife and the possibility even of starvation for some people. The fourth horse is the pale horse. Some of your translations will say the, the gray or the green horse. It's the color of a corpse. And the rider in this horse is called death, and Hades follows. In the ancient world, uh, people spoke of Hades as the realm of the dead. There was no coming back from Hades. Uh, and the word death there is also associated with some of the things mentioned in verse, <coughs> in verse 8, plague, pestilence, 
illness and so on. And so this last rider and his horse friends really sum up what all four riders are bringing to the world. Death is the ultimate end of all these things. War, bloodshed, economic disaster, sickness, suffering. Here's our world as it is today, friends, and, ha- and, and as it has been for centuries. The work of these four horses provides the content for our evening news night after night after night. These four horsemen have been galloping across the world for centuries, particularly so since the Lord Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. The war horse is riding out Despite the optimism of the so-called Age of Enlightenment in the 19th century, the 20th century was the bloodiest century in history. More wars and worse wars than ever before. And it hasn't stopped in the first section of the 21st century with the war on terror and Islamic fundamentalism and ancient tribalism seeming as fierce and divisive as ever across the world. The war horse and the red horse are riding out and blood is being shed. The black horse is also still riding out. If we're not hearing about COVID at the top of every news bulletin, we're hearing about the cost of living at the top of every news bulletin. Uh, Prices rising, concerns about supply meeting demand across the world. And again, friends, it's always been like this. The Wall Street crash in 1929, the rationing of food during the Second World War, the financial crisis of 2008. Prices rise, prices fall, economies grow, and economies shrink. The pale horse is riding out and has been riding out for centuries. The Black Death, nearly 700 years ago, Spanish flu a hundred years ago, smallpox, measles, cancer, COVID-19. Just how worried should we be? Well, friends, if these horses were running wild, then we would have every reason to be worried indeed. A wild horse is a very different creature from a tame, broken horse. But these horses are not running wild. They are all under the control of the lamb. Notice that each of these four riders is summoned. They are commanded to come, verse 1. And there is a limit on what they may do, verse 8. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth. In other words, they are not ultimately in charge. The lamb is in charge. Heaven's throne is in charge. Remember how Jesus described himself to John back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. I have the keys of death and Hades. The Lord Jesus has died and now is alive forevermore. He is in control even of death and Hades themselves. And this would have been such a comfort, friends, to John's first readers. And I trust it's a comfort for us today as well. Because even in the short time between Jesus' ascension into heaven and the time when John wrote the words of Revelation, the people to whom he was writing these words had been suffering. They had not just been suffering persecution, 
They've been suffering the same kinds of things that everyone else around them was suffering at that time. Earthquakes, economic hardships, disease, death. And of course, God's people, we we still suffer these same things today. There isn't some force field around Christians that stops us from getting sick. We don't have some heavenly bank account to tap into when the cost of living begins to bite. We suffer as others suffer. And even this very week, we have suffered the grief and the heartache that death itself brings. But the purpose of Revelation, friends, is to reassure you that the Lamb has not abandoned you in the midst of your suffering. The Lamb is reigning even while there is evil and pain and heartache on the earth. The Lamb is still in control. G.K. Beale, who's written a, a huge commentary on Revelation, he suggests that the trials caused by these four horsemen have at least two purposes, to punish sinners and to purify saints. To punish sinners and to purify saints. These, are, these things, friends, that we've been thinking about, uh, death, war, uh, famine, and so on, these are part of God's judgments on sin here and now. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is being revealed. That his ultimate judgment is still to come on the last day. But he has already been pouring out in some measure judgment on our sinful world even today. And every so-called natural disaster, every dreadful news report of an accident here, a COVID variant there. Friends, it's an opportunity for sinners to repent. It's an opportunity for this world to stop and realize we are not in control. The Lamb is. God is. He is punishing sinners, but he is also purifying saints. He's purifying his saints. Every grief, every pain, every illness, every persecution that a Christian goes through, friends, it's part of the refining of our faith until the day when we finally stand before Christ in glory, completely perfect by his grace. Does the pain draw us to worship? Does it draw us into a greater dependence on God? Or does it cause us to withdraw into ourselves and the distractions and the trinkets <coughs> and the passing pleasures of, of this world? Friends, there is comfort to be had here if we have faith to see it, that evil is not running wild. Evil is under the control of the Lamb. And in that, there is great comfort for us. So the first four seals show us evil under the Lamb's control. But then we come to the fifth seal, and I will deal more briefly uh, with these next two, but the fifth seal. And with the fifth seal, we see the patient prayers of the Lamb's servants. The patient prayers of the Lamb's servants. Look at verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God, and for the witness they had borne. Altars, of course, in the Old Testament uh, were places where blood was sacrificed. And so the reason that there's an altar pictured here at this, at this juncture in the vision is emphasizing to us that these, these saints who are praying in heaven, they have shed their blood for their Savior. And having done that, their souls are now in heaven. 
And here we have an important reminder, friends, about what happens when we leave this scene of time, whether we die as martyrs or we die in a different way. In the words of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the souls of believers are at death made perfect in holiness and immediately pass into glory. When we die, our bodies are in the ground, but our souls live on, waiting for our physical resurrection. And until that moment, our souls are safe forever in heaven with the Savior, where they faithfully, the Savior that they faithfully served on earth. Again, friends, you have to appreciate the comfort this would have been, especially for John's first readers. Other parts of the New Testament hint at this as well, but there, there seems to have been great concern in the early church about the state of believers who had died before Christ returned. People for a while thought Christ was going to return very quickly. Uh, And the question was, well, what's happened to our loved ones if they've gone before he comes back? And over and over again, the New Testament reassures us they are safe with the Lord. They're in glory today. They're worshipping the Saviour. And here we see also that the martyrs are praying to the Saviour. Notice verse 10. They cried out with a a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long, how long? As we thought about earlier, this is an Old Testament question, this holy longing from believers who have suffered in this world and yet who know that God's justice is coming. They ask the question, how long? And what is it in particular that they're waiting for? (coughs) Well, again, verse 10. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Friends, these martyrs are praying for God's full and final judgment to come on their enemies. Those who put them to death. Those who, to this day, stand opposed to the Lamb and his followers. How long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood and judge your enemies. Now you might be thinking, well that doesn't sound like turn the other cheek. Uh, That doesn't sound very loving. That doesn't sound uh, like something Christians should be doing. Are, Are Christians not supposed to be forgiving? Is this really something Christians should be praying, we might ask? Well friends, here's the point. It is something that perfected Christians are praying. It is something that perfected Christians in heaven are praying. Again, the words of the catechism, we are made perfect when we arrive in heaven. That means that when the martyrs in heaven pray this prayer, there is no hint of hatred or malice, (coughs) no sense of wanting to get revenge or getting one back on their enemies. They are praying in in a state of perfection. They are praying with perfect knowledge. And they want God and the Lamb to receive the honor and the glory and the praise that they deserve. One preacher says they are praying that the world would see the righteousness and holiness of God's name. Bill says these petitioning saints who have been exalted to their heavenly state now have perfect knowledge. Their prayer is that the reputation of God and his people be vindicated. God will be considered unjust if he does not punish sin. So 
So friends, there's a holy longing in this prayer. A longing for God's name to be vindicated. A longing for sin to be done with. A longing for the enemies of God and the church to finally be shown up for the, for the rebellious sinners that they are and to receive the judgment that they deserve. Now friends, we might not yet be perfect as the saints in heaven are, but that doesn't mean that we can't live with a concern for people to finally realize that the God whose name they take in vain is holy and awesome and powerful. That the Jesus whose name they take in vain is, is not some wimp, not some legend, but that he is the lion and he is the lamb slain but standing whose wrath will be too much for them to bear. And since we today don't yet know that who the faithful will be and who the villains will ultimately turn out to be, friends, we should be living with a desire that all men everywhere repent, that the enemies of the church would become members of the church, as people like Saul of Tarsus did. Look at verse 11. And we should rather, we should... We should want that and we should pray that knowing that if they don't repent, judgment will come. Look at verse 11. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. One of the reasons that these martyrs have to wait patiently is because God says he hasn't finished gathering in his people. He hasn't finished calling people to repent. And that's the era that we're still living in today, friends. It's the era of grace as well as judgment. The Christians being hunted out of house churches in China, their witness is a gracious opportunity for their persecutors to repent. The Christians in slave labor camps in North Korea, their witness is a gracious opportunity for their captors to repent. In Africa, in Asia, wherever the church is spreading, and particularly wherever Christians are dying for their faith, the number of our brothers is being made complete, and when it is, the end will come. And again, we can take such assurance from this. One preacher has said, as we look out at a painful, rebellious world, <coughs> we can be sure that God's honor will be vindicated. That those who truly belong to Christ will be safe. That the number will be complete. Every time you read a Barnabas aid prayer letter. Or Open Doors. Or Asia Link. Or whoever it is. And they're telling you about uh, more Christians persecuted. Or even slaughtered for their faith. You can pray, Lord, how long? But you can also be reassured. The number of our brothers is being made complete and sooner or later the end will come so we've seen in the fourth seals evil under the lamb's control we've seen in the fifth seal the prayers of the lamb's servants and thirdly and finally this morning we see in the sixth seal the dreadful day of the lamb's wrath the dreadful day of the lamb's wrath the sixth seal is opened in verse 12 and now we're right on the brink of judgment day the last day and notice friends what's emphasized here is that everything that seems so permanent everything that has seemed to be the same forever we would say 
all of a sudden it will be gone. Look at the end of verse 12. It says, The sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. Verse 14 says, The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. This is what we were singing about in Psalm 102 earlier on. You remember back in Genesis 1 when God created the sun and the moon and he said that part of the purpose of the sun and the moon was to determine the the times and the seasons on the earth. Our whole annual calendar is based on the position of the sun. Uh, That's that's how we set our time. That's how how we know the seasons. It all seems so permanent to us. Well here friends, the sun is blacked out and the very sky above is rolled up the way you would roll something up and throw it in the rubbish bin that's what happens to the sky in this vision and that's exactly the point friends the sun is blacked out the the sky is disposed of because they won't be needed anymore as hard as this is for us to picture and imagine the day is coming when what seems so permanent will be gone and then look at verse 15 Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. John here is seeing all people who have remained unrepentant all people who have remained in rebellion against the Lamb of God, (coughs) VIPs and nobodies, slaves and free, and they are all seized with fear. They're so fearful, in fact, that they want the rocks to fall on them. Being crushed by rocks, they think, would be better than having to face the wrath of the Lamb. And yet they will not be able to hide from the wrath of the Lamb. His wrath will be inescapable. And no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter how much you give to charity, how often you came to church, no matter how much better you think you are than an Islamic terrorist or anyone else, you will have to face the wrath of the Lamb. And there'll be no way to get out of it. There's a scene in the Titanic movie where one of the millionaires on board the ship, earlier in the film, he gives a wad of cash to one of the officers on deck as the situation begins to deteriorate and he's trying to bribe the officer into guaranteeing him a seat on one of the lifeboats. But later in the film, the millionaire approaches the officer who's standing guard over the lifeboats and the officer throws the money back in his face and he says, your money can't save you any more than it can save me. And so it will be, friends, on the day of the wrath of the Lamb. For those who have not repented of their sin, no matter how good they thought they were, how much money they have or didn't have, the wrath of the Lamb will fall upon them. What about you today? Have you been living in sin? And of course you haven't called it that. You've called it your right to choose for yourself. 
You've called it white lies. You've called it harmless. You've called it just a bit of fun. But it is sin against the one seated on the throne and against the Lamb. You think you're, you're the only king you need. You think your favorite sport or hobby or person is all you need. And if that's still the case for you in the day of judgment, you will be pleading for rocks to crush you rather than the wrath of the Lamb to find you. Is there any escape at all? Is there no way to avoid the wrath of the Lamb? Well, notice that a question is asked at the very end of verse 17, very end of the chapter. Who can stand? Who can stand? In other words, will there be anyone found in the day of judgment who doesn't suffer the wrath of the Lamb upon them? And friends, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Just glance on down at chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, what are they doing? Standing. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And then verse 10, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There's the answer, friends. There will be many standing on that day. It will be those who have trusted in the Lamb. You see, as long as, as long as the horsemen are riding and the martyrs are praying, there is a chance. There's an opportunity for you today. Before the wrath of the Lamb comes, trust in the Lamb. He is slain but standing. He has died but he has risen. And he offers to all who will come to him life, not death, grace, not judgment, salvation, not condemnation. Just how worried should we be? That was the question. Without Christ, you have every reason to be afraid. Afraid of those evils and judgment that the world is already feeling. But if your faith is in Christ, you have nothing to fear. Even death itself is nothing to fear. It's just a stepping stone to everlasting life. It's a valley through which we travel to arrive at last in the presence of our precious Savior, where we will declare with the multitude forever, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen.